welcome to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. It is Nick Zararis. It is Friday of the NFL's Conference Championship Weekend. One of the best weekends of the year as a sports fan. We've got four awesome teams, four awesome quarterbacks, two great games, a whole lot to talk about. But before we get to the fun part, got to take care of the business. Follow the blog, Gotham SN, on Twitter, the web address, Gotham Sports Network putting out two blogs a week that's just me and then there's a bunch of other talented people new york focus on sports yankee stuff went up this week good stuff there of course if you're not already subscribe if you're on apple podcast throw a follow if you're on spotify subscribe if you're on any of the other streaming services really do appreciate it helps me keep track of what type of content people want that kind of thing makes my life easier and it's just good to know that uh the work's being appreciated. So, to set the scene, we had one of the most unprecedented, yes, I had to say unprecedented, seasons of all time in the NFL this year. Somehow, someway, like Schefter said in Week 17, they got in all 256 regular season games in spite of a once-in-a-century pandemic that crippled multiple teams for multi-week stretches. I mean, we're not that far removed from the Ravens having to take essentially a B team to Pittsburgh to play on a Wednesday afternoon and Trace McSorley throwing a touchdown pass to Hollywood Brown late in the game to make it a one-score game. Not that far removed from there being legitimate chatter about the NFL needing to take a week or two pause to help get the spread under control with certain teams that had serious outbreaks. The Ravens had a bad one. The Browns had a bad one. I know the Giants had a few guys here and there pop up. It's pretty, it, it was a real problem for the league this year. And somehow, well, but not somehow. They pretty unethically forced their way through a season because they had TV contracts to fulfill. And all the owners need their revenue. The owners need their TV money. That That's why they were able to persevere through a difficult season. Not like it was some her. it was a Herculean effort to make this season happen, but not... Not the most ethical way to play a season and under these conditions. But, all that said, I'm so glad we had a football season. So many memories, so many compelling storylines, so many interesting players. Next week, during Super, the build-up to Super Bowl week, what, during that bye between, you know, conference title game, bye week, then the following week, Super Bowl Sunday, there'll be a lot of reflection, I'll check in with some people who came on earlier in the season to talk about their teams going into the offseason, hopefully manage to get a few new people on to talk about some of their teams who are going through some interesting things right now, the Eagles hired a head coach, they hired the Colts offensive coordinator with a very generic Italian name, Texans still need a head coach. The Lions hired Dan Campbell, the tight ends coach, who was the interim coach of the Dolphins a couple of years ago. Lots of storylines always uh, there always are in the NFL. That it it drives the conversation better than pretty much every sport. I mean, the players in the NBA do a better job of driving storylines just by you know pursuing their own interests and leading to things like James Harden forcing his way out. But football, I'll see you guys on the other side of the drop. The bills make me wanna shout. Kick your heels up and shout. Throw your hands up and shout. Throw your head back and shout. Come on now, the bills are making it happen now. And with
with that, we come to an interesting point in football history. I made this point on the recap episode of the divisional round this past Monday, but it bears worth repeating. We've seen the changing of the guard happen before our eyes in the NFL, where the last generation of quarterbacks, the Rivers, the Roethlisberger, Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, that era of quarterbacks, it, there aren't going to be any more purely pocket passers anymore just because it's inefficient to do that. There are enough kids at the high school level and the college level who have above-average mobility that make them valuable. Like, even someone who's per- perceived as a pocket passer, like a Carson Wentz, uh, still mobile. Carson Wentz is agile. He can move around in the pocket. I mean, it's part of why he had trouble this year, because he didn't just know when to take a sack. He kept trying to break tackles, that kind of thing. But aside from Brady, who's, you know, the unicorn, the once-in-a-generation type player who perseveres through all these crazy circumstances, these three guys, Rodgers, Mahomes, and Josh Allen, are the evolution of the quarterback position, where they're able to make plays with their legs, they have incredible arms, And then Roger's a little different where he's been around for so long. He's kind of got that encyclopedia memory. He's really good pre-snap. It's one of the storylines I'll talk about when we get there. Going in order of the games this weekend, because the NFC closed out last weekend on Fox, it's the inverse for conference championship weekend, meaning that the NFC is going to kick off conference title game weekend at 3 o'clock, and then we'll go to the AFC for the primetime game. So, well, going in order of the games, because it just makes for easier conversation that way, helps me keep track of my notes, because I took my notes in the order the games are being played. So, let's start very straightforward here. We have two elite teams. You don't get this far without being a good team. I know the Bucks were pretty inconsistent during the regular season, We saw them struggle against teams like the Bears, who they lost to. We saw them struggle against the Giants on Monday Night Football. We saw the Saints have their number two separate times in the regular season. All of that said, you got to give Brady credit for embarking on a difficult challenge and taking taking it upon himself to see if he could do it without Belichick. And that storyline is going to get beaten to hell. Going into Sunday, I mean, if you watch the Fox pregame, I'm sure it's going to be mentioned more than once. So, spread, Green Bay three points, total 51.5. Let's get down to the beautiful part of this game. This is strength versus strength. I know we all think about the Packers through the lens of Aaron Rodgers. And yes, Rodgers is 99.999 going to win NFL MVP this year. For the remarkable stats he put up. I mean, they had more passing touchdowns than punts this year. It's a good barometer of a very efficient offense that's not going to give the other team a lot of chances. But efficiency-wise and DVOA-wise, Green Bay, number one running offense in terms of that. I know the Ravens average more yards per game. Green Bay, elite rushing offense. Tampa Bay, elite rushing defense. Sets up for an interesting matchup. It We... I'll, uh, you know what, I'll do it right now. They These two teams played in the regular season week six. Green Bay got out to a 10-0 lead. Rodgers threw two picks in a row. The final score was 38-10. to 
That seems like eons ago in the uh, grand scheme of things. Te both teams have managed to iron out some of their kinks. Tampa Bay's defense is playing a little bit better. Green Bay's offense really found its rhythm down the stretch. They really got into a nice rhythm of disguising what they want to do offensively, which is why them being so good at running the ball it matters. In the grand scheme of value, in terms of like value per attempt, a passing play is the Rogers pass attempt has more value than the Aaron Jones, the AJ Dillon, or the Jonathan Williams rushing attempt. No matter what, a passing attempt is always going to be more valuable, but for a number of reasons. But but in terms of hiding what you want to do, because Green Bay is so good at running the ball, they're able to throw out of those running formations because the defense has to respect the running game, which should, at least in theory, help them in this rematch against Tampa Bay. I know more than one person has cited the win-loss record for non-divisional opponents who met in the regular season in the rematch. It's something like 17-9 and in the subsequent playoff rematch for the team that won the first time, which you would think gives Tampa Bay an advantage. I know I've seen a few of my friends who are in the gambling world, who are pretty up and up on these things, who read a lot. I've gone through as much material as I could in preparation for this episode. I've read a bunch of stuff. I listened to a few podcasts to kind of get a feel for everything. And that win-loss record is a realistic thing. You think about what worked for Tampa Bay in that first time around. They sent a lot of heat at Rodgers. Todd Bowles, the Buccaneers defensive coordinator, former head coach of the Jets, defensive coordinator in Arizona. He's very aggressive. He likes to blitz. He likes to send corners on blitzes. Tampa Bay, he's done something interesting where because his two inside linebackers and their 3-4 defense, Levante David and Devin White, are so fast, they will occasionally send the Mike linebacker from the inside on a blitz where he, he'll be the fifth rusher or sometimes the sixth. They've, I'm, when I rewatched this game in preparation, there were a couple of times where they sent a nickel corner in from the edge and then an ins one of the two inside linebackers, whether it's a White or um, Levante David, to make Rodgers move around in the pocket so he he's not looking down the field because he's trying to dance around in the pocket. It's one of those things where it's extremely difficult to blitz Rodgers effectively. Historically, if you look at Rodgers' numbers against the blitz, he burns you if you blitz him. Because typically, if you're blitzing, that means you're in man coverage in the back end. And one-on-one... -on -one, he can get the ball out pretty quick. One of the better guys at getting the ball out quick in face of the blitz. One thing I will say to look at from just a viewer perspective, when a team sends a blitz, the ball typically goes where the blitz came from because the blitz is vacating space. It's one of the little tricks where if you watch a lot of football, you pick up on it. I, I, I'll be honest, I've read quite a bit about crunching tape efficiently and no, things to look for in terms of what's working, what isn't. That was one of the key things. If a defense is blitzing, wherever the blitzer, the extra rusher. So if a defense has their three or four down linemen, depending if it's a 3-4 or a 4-3, and then your edge rushers if it's a 3-4, a so the two outside guys coming down towards the line of scrimmage, a blitz is more than your base alignment. So if they're rushing three... They're rushing four, they're rushing five. Once you start rushing one more than your number, your down lineman, that's a blitz. Okay? Enough said. I, I, I shouldn't have to explain what a blitz is, but yeah. Thinking in terms of this game now, 
I want to give... I lean Green Bay in this game for a few reasons. I'll start running down the list here, but number one, Green Bay's offensive line, even without Bakhtiari, who tore his ACL week seven, going into the week seven, week 17, where he tore his ACL on New Year's Eve, the Thursday night at practice, which was awful. The best left tackle in football. Packers offensive line has still been good. I know Aaron Donald was pretty dinged up last week in the divisional round matchup, and he wasn't really able to get after the quarterback, but Green Bay's offensive line held up. They were the number one offensive line in terms of win rate for pass blocking, which matters. Tampa Bay is going to send heat, whether it's David, whether it's White, whether it's Jason Pierre-Paul, whether it's a corner or a safety. Tampa Bay is going to send heat, and they are going to try and make Rodgers get the ball out quickly before he's ready to. Green Bay likes to push the ball down the field. So, on in situations where Tampa Bay doesn't blitz, you're going to see them play a lot of zone because they don't have great man-to-man corners. When I look at the Tampa Bay defense, Sean Murphy Bunning, good. Jamal Dean, decent. And then there's Carlton Davis, who was matched up a decent amount with Devontae Adams in the first time around. But you got to remember, that was Devontae Adams' first game back from a three-week absence for, I think it was a hamstring issue at the beginning of the season. So since then, obviously, the Packers' offense has found its rhythm. Matchups-wise... You're going to see a lot of chess on both sides from the defense. These defenses are both situationally good. We've seen teams that can hold up in pass protection manage to burn the Buccaneers down the field a little bit. So there's one play that stands out in my mind that kind of tells me a lot about Tampa Bay's defense. I mentioned the Giants-Buccaneers game from Monday Night Football, like, I think it was, like, week 10 or 11, somewhere in that ballpark. More than once, the Buccaneers sent heat, and because the Giants kept an extra people to block, they gave Jones enough time, but he didn't scan the field long enough and see his guys open down the field. It's one of the dangers when you blitz, you're leaving your your defensive backs out on an island in coverage, and in this case, Tampa Bay is going to have to respect Adams, they're going to have to respect Tunyon, and they have to respect whoever's in at running back out of the backfield. Then once you start getting towards Valdez-Scantling and um, Alan Lazard, or <laughs> Equiminius St. Brown, if he manages to get in the game, once you start getting lower and lower down the lineup, then you start being like, okay, this is manageable for Tampa Bay. I don't feel too bad about any of these. On the inverse, there's going to be a lot of chess matching. So, Tampa Bay's defense, a lot of blitzes, and when they're not blitzing, they're going to sit in zone, and they're going to make you try and nickel and and dime your way up the field because they're so good at stopping the run because of how athletic and fast they are. I was just listening to the Athletics NFL show. Robert Mays made a specific point that when the Packers ran the ball to the outside when Rodgers is under center, so an outside run, so outside of the tackles, they were blown up almost every single time because Devin White is so fast. When Devin White is flying around, Levante David's flying around, lateral runs to the outside, to outside the tackles, that gives the linebacker enough time to get outside. So Mays suggested that Green Bay should look to run inside, whether it's behind the center or one of the two guards, 
to try and take away from that speed. That way, once White and um, David start coming downhill a couple of times on inside runs, that is where you can burn them in the play-action game. Which brings me to my next point. Green Bay was dominant using play-action. It's one of the the core tenets, core principles of this branch of the Shanahan offense. And when I say Shanahan, I mean Michael Shanahan, the guy who used to coach the Broncos and the then Washington Redskins. I mean Kyle's father. The, all of these guys are running variances of that. Whether you're talking about Kyle in San Francisco, McVay with the Rams, you're talking about LaFleur with the Packers, um, Gary Kubiak with the Vikings. These are all takes on that zone run play action offense that's really oh kevin stefanski of course who's probably going to win coach of the year same tree they all rely on play action and running the ball and again you don't need to be running the ball particularly efficiently for play action to work i mean we saw the bills do it last week where they didn't attempt a running play till their 20th play of the game from scrimmage and the ravens still had to respect their play action for Green Bay, they need to get Rodgers moving around. They need to get the corners being a little aggressive in the running game, get Adams over the top, that kind of thing. Now, switching things over, I know I've talked a lot about the Green Bay offense against the Tampa Bay defense because I think that's the most interesting matchup of this game. From a viewership perspective, I think that's where you're going to see the most chess because Rodgers is just so smart at the line of scrimmage where you can tell... I'm not going to say I know every single call-out Rodgers has, but when he calls out certain things, you know what they mean. If he's saying alert after he hard counts, it means to pay attention to whoever jumped when he tried to hard count. Or if he's pointing at someone, it it usually means, hey, that guy's coming in for pressure. We need to make sure to protect. Or if it's a word that begins with the letter L, it usually means they got to shift the line to the left. The word that begins with an R, they got to shift the line to the right. Or I know Green Bay in the past has done an East Coast city to shift the line to the right or a West Coast city to shift the line to the left. These are all little things you pick up from watching as much football as I do. So transitioning now to the Tampa Bay offense versus the Green Bay defense. Green Bay's defense loves, loves, loves being in nickel and dime personnel because they have the defensive backs. Against Tampa Bay, it's an interesting idea. In theory, if Green Bay sends out nickel or dime more or less every down and invites Tampa Bay to run the ball, it's an interesting idea that I think Mike Pettin will will try at least at the beginning of the game. See if Tampa Bay is willing to run the ball with Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette, or if Shady McCoy is active, or if Keyshawn Vaughn, whoever it's in, Tampa Bay's done running back by committee all year. You've seen spurts. They broke out the screen, running back screens, a lot against the Saints in the divisional round. Leonard Fournette had quite a few catches, and he had a receiving touchdown, which is pretty... I know Fournette had like a 70-catch season a couple years ago for the Jaguars, but he's obviously not a receiving back. That was more out of necessity. But Green Bay comes out in nickel and dime. You got either five, six, five or six defensive backs on the field. This, in turn, invites Tampa Bay to run the ball on you. 
less efficient for them to run the ball. Green Bay's run defense is a little suspect. You have it, it historically you've been able to get them on the ground. So in theory, inviting them to run and have not having Tom Brady throw the ball to Mike Evans, to Chris Godwin, to Gronk, to Cameron Brait, to Antonio Brown, if he's gonna be able to go. He was limited in practice, but all assumptions are that A B is gonna go. It's interesting because Typically, when you evaluate playoff games, I always come back to who's the head coach, who's the quarterback. The quarterbacks in this game have both been in this moment before. Brady Rodgers have been to conference title games, to Super Bowls. These are two of the best, probably six, seven quarterbacks of all time. Both of these guys are not going to be daunted by this moment. As for the coaches... I trust LaFleur more than I trust Arians. I know Arians has slowly but surely gotten better with Brady this year. He's They've found a nice groove down the stretch. Yes, they were feasting on bad defenses, but they still had to go and do it. I think the key to this game, at least for Tampa, is going to be game management. When I say game management... I mean, in terms of going for it and punting on fourth and short, fourth and medium from, we'll say the red 45, so the Tampa Bay's own 45-yard line and forward. In this kind of game, you have to assume that no matter how good of defense you play, Green Bay's going to get at least 24 to 27 points. That's is a reasonable assumption that no matter what you do, no matter how good of defense you play, they're going to get into the mid-20s, at least mid-20s. With an over-under of 51.5, that tells you the odds makers have the score of this game around 27, 24, 28, 25, in that ballpark. That's where the odds makers like this game, in the mid-20s. I think that's probably a little low. I'm probably going to play the over in this game and probably take the points with Tampa Bay, just in case. I know there are that when the lines first came out, there were some three and a halfs out there. If you can still get Green Bay, uh, excuse me, Tampa Bay three and a half, absolutely take Tampa Bay with the hook just because of the the value opportunity there. Even if it is like a minus one fifteen, minus one twenty situation. I still don't think that's bad value just from the perspective of you're getting Tom Brady as a road dog and the hook. The the half a point means a lot in this game. I don't think either team runs away with this game just because of the nature of their offenses. I know we, we saw Tampa Bay run away with it the first time these two teams met, but I don't think you can pencil Rodgers in for two interceptions in the first in the first half of the game, if there are that many turnovers, yeah. Before I switch over to the Bills Chiefs, the last point I wanted to make here was Green Bay did exactly what we expected them to do last weekend against the Rams. They moved the ball up and down the field. They took advantage of the Rams' zone defenses, where they were sending their guys on long crossing routes across the zones, where. Someone who was trailing would have to catch up, run them down from behind. I know specifically the one play that I still remember was a play where Devontae Adams ran. And I'm pretty sure it was just a a mid-crossing route, like a five and in. And 
it was shown coverage, and Jamal had Ramsey, Jamal Ramsey, Jalen Ramsey, excuse me, had to run him down from behind because it was zone defense, and no one picked up the zone Devontae Adams was in, so Jalen Ramsey had to run him down from behind. The kind of thing we're going to have to see in this game, can Green Bay move the ball against this defense? Will Tampa Bay be as aggressive blitzing? There's an argument to be made that the Tampa Bay might come out a little more conservatively at first just to keep everything in front of them, not risk the big play, and then as the game goes along, then you get into that situation. Specific, one of the things I want, I'll want i mention here is, I believe it was the Action Network's podcast, they b- talked about the fact that traditionally the first halves of conference championship games are low scoring because neither offense wants to be too aggressive, neither defense wants to be too aggressive. There's a feeling out process. The the play callers on offense and defense are feeling each other out, trying to figure out, okay, what are we doing here? What's working? What's not working? All right, they're doing this. What can we do to counter that? So Tampa Bay comes out on offense and Green Bay sitting there in nickel and they're not able to move the ball throwing. And they're still sitting there in nickel or dime. All right, let's just take the easy ones. We'll go to Ronald Jones. We'll keep in heavy personnel. We'll keep the two tight ends in the game where if you have Gronk blocking downhill, that's essentially a sixth offensive lineman. And then you have a numbers advantage. If it's nickel, it means there's only two linebackers and three down and uh, four down. Well, Green Bay plays a three, four. But okay, so in theory, most of this game will probably be in nickel personnel because there's just too much speed on the field and you want to have the extra defensive back as opposed to the linebacker. But in theory, if Green Bay is in their 3-4 base defense and the Buccaneers have Gronk on, as an inline blocker, that's essentially six offensive linemen against seven box defenders. If they bring a safety down, that's different. But in theory, if you have that straight numbers advantage where it's running back, linebacker, and it's even if it's six on seven in terms of that seventh guy who's in the box against the running back, you take that because Tampa Bay's offensive line has been really good at getting downhill, pushing upfield, and giving their running backs room. It's just that Ronald Jones and Fournette, neither has been particularly good this year. So running the ball in good situations. If Tampa, If Green Bay is giving Tampa Bay a soft look in the box, Run until they have to respect the run, and then go play action off of that. Ditto for Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay's defense against Green Bay's offense. If Tampa Bay is being very aggressive blitzing, what can you do to counter blitzes? You can do inside runs. You can do screen passes. You can do... Yeah, you can do some RPO-type things where you throw laterally to the side. Straight horizontal passes, that kind of thing. Away from the pressure. Once Tampa has to start dropping guys in zone, that's where Rodgers can start dotting you up. And I know, I know, I know, I constantly bang the drum that running the ball isn't particularly important, that being able to move past the ball efficiently is more important. Green Bay, they don't need to run the ball a ton. They just need to run the ball enough that Tampa Bay has to respect the run. That was one of the reasons the game got away from them the first time around, is that because Green Bay was behind by so much, they basically had to throw every single play for two and a half, three quarters, and 
when they're sitting past, they're just going to play deep zone, keep everything in front of them. And yeah, four-yard completions add up, but it's going to take you forever to get up the field if you're only completing every pass for four yards, and that's if you're even completing them. I like Green Bay to win this game. I know a lot of people like Tampa Bay's money line. I I understand it from a value perspective. I'm just going to say this. The Saints defense is very good. Last week we saw Drew Brees lost the Saints that game. The Buccaneers offense wasn't particularly efficient, wasn't particularly aggressive. They punted in a few questionable spots, but I get it. I'm gonna pro I'm definitely gonna play the over fifty one and a half. And then I will probably end up playing Green Bay minus three. I'm not gonna feel great about it, but that's where I'm at on game number one of the wild card of the conference title game weekend. Now that crinkling you heard was me turning my notes because I am a good host and a good journalist and I have my information here to talk about. Game number two, two of the young, exciting, gunslinger quarterbacks, the Buffalo Bills going to Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City, Missouri. The Chiefs are three-point favorites. The total is 53.5. Interestingly, this was another game that there was a matchup in the regular season. Interesting part of this game was the Bills' approach to it. Now, the final score was 26-17, to 17, Kansas City. It was in Buffalo. It was a 4 o'clock Monday night football game. I believe it was the week that the Cardinals played the Cowboys as the 8 o'clock second Monday night football game because the Chiefs had COVID issues because the week before they had played New England, and New England had Cam Newton and then Stephon Gilmore test positive. Kansas City had to wait an extra few days, and they ended up playing at 4 o'clock on a Monday. Wasn't a particularly good game for the Bills. They had an interesting approach. I liked what they did in theory. They invited Kansas City to run the ball and said, all right, fine, you want to get four yards of carry and it's third and two and we roll the dice, we can stop you on enough third and twos that we can win this game. From a philosophy standpoint, yeah, you don't want Patrick Mahomes throwing the ball to Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, Sammy Watkins, McCole Hardman, whoever the hell the Chiefs split out wide because they're fast and athletic and they can make a play with the ball in their hands. If you can get the Chiefs to run the ball 28, 30 times, I'm not going to say it'll work, but it's probably a safer way to play the game than playing your normal defense and saying, all right, run or pass, we're going to play both evenly and we're going to respect both evenly because that's where you get into trouble because you have, you know, a linebacker on Travis Kelsey, you have Tyree Kill on one side of the field by himself or in the slot where all he has to do is get some a little bit of speed or the Chiefs can break out one of their quirky leak plays which they haven't run in a few weeks. That's a point Robert Mays made on the Athletic Podcast. The Chiefs haven't broken out tight end leak in a little while, so that'll be something to watch. Of course, the biggest weekend going into this story is Mahomes' status. I mean, I originally had this game first in my rundown in my notes because that was a big story. That is the biggest story of the football world, that the best non-Aaron Donald player in football is 
has an uncertain status going into this weekend. I mean, I moved it further down in the rundown because as I was making this rundown earlier during the day, it looked... I, I, I read more than one report saying that Mahomes is more than likely going to go this weekend and that he his concussion stuff... There hasn't been any flare-ups, there haven't been any neurological symptoms which would trigger the protocol, what have you, that kind of thing. The, the thing I'm worried about from a Mahomes standpoint is his foot. Earlier in the game, before he had to leave with the... It's weird, because on the Dan Patrick show this morning, he said that he had been told it wasn't a concussion that Mahomes suffered on Sunday against the Browns, that there wasn't a concussion because there wasn't forcible contact to the head. It was just a viciously large amount of pressure on his neck that kind of made him dizzy, and that had a subsequent neurological effect. That was what Dan Patrick said on his show this morning. He could have been wrong. He could have gotten bad information from one of his sources. That That is possible, but... His foot is an issue. Mahomes, one of the things that makes Mahomes special is his mobility. It, I know we don't think of Mahomes as a scrambling quarterback, but he is. He can run above average speed for a quarterback. I know the Chiefs are going to probably take all those option plays out of the playbook because he got hurt on two of them last week. The, op, the two option plays were... The one where he hurt his foot, and the other one was the one where he got thrown to the ground by Mac Wilson and suffered what... Most, I'm just going to refer to it as a concussion for simplicity's sake, but... Mahomes not being 100% gives the Bills opportunities here. If they can keep him in the pocket, if they decide to send some blitzes after him, try and test out how mobile he actually is, it can make for some opportunities on the football. I know the Bills' defense was not as good as it was last year this past season. It was still pretty good. It was still top 10 in DVOA. They've still got playmakers, whether it's Trey White, whether it's Ed Oliver, whether it's Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde. They got Matt Milano back, which helps. They've still got Edmonds. They've got Klein. Jerry Hughes, not as good as he used to be. Still pretty good situational pass rusher. The Bills' defense is good. It's not great. It's not dominant. There's no elite pass rusher here. If they're going to get pressure, they're going to have to do it manufacturing it through scheme. It's doable. Look for the Bills to just drop guys and invite the run because it takes away what makes Kansas City's offense explosive. Yeah, the Chiefs will take the free yards if you're only going to have five guys, six guys in the box and invite them to run the ball. Not sure if Clyde Edwards-Alaire is going to be able to go. He wasn't able to play last weekend. He was questionable. He still has the questionable designation. If he doesn't, Darrell Williams, Le'Veon Bell, they'll be fine. I, I, plenty of opportunities to run the ball for Kansas City, which is what the Bills want. When I think about this game, I wonder how well the Bills have been playing recently factors into it. I know, I know, I know. I always say that momentum, hot hand fallacy, whatever you want to call it, isn't real. I do think there is something to say for confidence. 
do think the Bills are playing with a particular amount, a particularly large amount of confidence because of the kind of season they have. You got to think, the Bills have only lost three games this year. One was to the Chiefs, which I already mentioned. Another, the Hail Mary, you know, last second, kind of a, kind of a freaky play, but it happens. And the third loss was when Tennessee boat raced them after Tennessee had the COVID flare up and got their game moved because of it. Not a lot. I mean, the Bills, uh, I've been thoroughly impressed what the Bills have done with not a ton of superstars, elite players. Stephon Diggs, elite. Josh Allen, fringe elite. Other than that, and Trey White. Those are three elite players on this team. But other than that, there's just a lot of guys. I like a lot of the pieces on this team when you look around. Uh, Mitch Morse, a good center. They got a lot of value at Darrell Williams at right tackle. Cole Beasley is one of the best best slot receivers in football. John Brown is a... Uh, he's had a 1,000-yard season a couple times. Dawson Knox is an above-average tight end. Zero from the running game. Bills were 22nd in DVOA in terms of ru- in rushing yard, rushing the ball. Not a good running team. I, that's in part because their offensive line is better at pass blocking than run blocking. But when the Bills... The Bills don't need to run the ball particularly well against Kansas City to have a good chance in this game. I want... I think the Bills are going to win this game. So view my commentary about it through that lens. I think the Bills are going to win this game. I worry about McDermott in this game in terms of going for it and trusting his defense a little too much. But at the same time, the Bills are one of the more aggressive teams in terms of passing on early downs, which is good. You're not wasting plays. You're not setting up second and eights or third and nines. You're keeping Allen in favorable situations. And I just, I've been awed by Josh Allen's growth in his three years in the league. I was looking at something today that one of the PFF writers wrote. His theory is basically that Josh Allen had the single best third-year leap of any quarterback in the history of the NFL. Pretty remarkable stuff. Of course, there are holes in EPA, that kind of thing. They're not universal statistics. If they were, everybody would be using them. They don't account for absolutely everything, but... Josh Allen has made a remarkable jump, and through their two playoff games this year, thus far, he has willed them very far. That game against the Colts, he was the difference between winning and losing. He wasn't great against the Ravens. He missed some throws, particularly the deep ball. His deep ball accuracy has always been a little suspect, but wasn't great. It was a really windy night. The Ravens have a good secondary. I'm willing to... Allen's worthy of the benefit of the doubt, because... He hasn't done any of the mind-numbing things he did last year. If this was last year's Bills going into this situation, I absolutely would have thought the Chiefs were going to win this game. But Josh Allen seems to have gotten those bad decisions out of his body. Of course, this is probably me jinxing him to all hell, saying that he'll probably have two mind-numbing fumbles. He'll be 20 yards down the field and lateral like he did last year against the Texans in the wildcard game. It's difficult for me. I like both of these teams. I like the Bills. I love Josh Allen's one of the most likable people in football. 
The Bills Mafia are a sympathetic group. The Four Falls of Buffalo is one of, if not my favorite, 30 for 30s about the Bills teams that went to four straight Super Bowls and didn't win. Matchups-wise, I'll be curious to see how Buffalo opts to go on their uh, go on defense. Are they going to just sit in quarters like they're known to do, try and keep everything in front of them because they've got Trey White, because they've got Poyer and Hyde to kind of anchor the defense in those deep zones and try and keep everything in front of them? Or are you going to have to get a little heat on Mahomes because he's got the bum foot, because he's not 100%? It's possible they're just going to play some zone and try not to overexert themselves gonna try not to give up any Tyree kill big plays it's difficult Kelsey is a mismatch on pretty much anyone on the field I mean you saw what he did to freaking Denzel Ward Denzel Ward the legitimate number one quarter in the NFL and Kelsey put him on his ass there's not a lot of tight ends in the history of football who can put a top 10 corner on their ass in man-to-man coverage Chiefs have the best play caller of the decade, last 15 years, and Andy Reid. Even if Mahomes isn't 100%, I feel pretty confident that Reid is still going to be aggressive. They're going to go for it in the right fourth down situations. I mean, he did it with Chad Henney, for God's sake, last week. If he was willing to do it with Chad Henney, who's a career backup, I'm sure he'd be willing to do it with a 90% Patrick Mahomes who just, you know, can't run the ball. Mahomes' running is an element to his game that's a little underrated. He's really good at just getting those five, six yards on scampers when the play breaks down or keeping the scramble drill alive and letting his receivers downfield make something happen. Situational defense will be interesting. Like I said, I expect the Bills to repeat what they did in game number one assuming they can get their offense going. If they can get their offense going, I think they'll be fine. Excuse The Bills' offense, I mean. If the Bills can get their offense going, I think they'll be complacent to let the Chiefs run the ball and control time of possession. But the opportunities the Bills do have, they need touchdowns. With your total set of 53.5, that means your implied score is 29-25 in favor of the Chiefs. I think I'm playing the Bills to be completely honest with you. I like the Bills. Josh Allen is one of the best road quarterbacks against the spread over the last three years. Typically, that's because the Bills have been pretty big underdogs, but they can... I like the Chief, I like the Bills in this spot. I really do. And it goes without saying that it takes luck to win a Super Bowl, just a single one. It's why repeating in the NFL is so damn hard. It's You need to get bounces. The Chiefs got every single bounce they could possibly get last year. I mean, they trailed by 10 in all of their playoff games, and they still found a way to win. I don't know if you can get that lucky two years in a row. Yes, I understand that luck is what happens when skill meets opportunity, but all it takes is one ball batted up in the air, one interception, one fumble to swing the momentum of the game. I mean, the Chiefs are a fumble away from not being here. If Rashard Higgins doesn't fumble that ball through the end zone for a touchback. There's a legitimate argument this is Browns Bills in Buffalo for a trip to the Super Bowl. Yes, I understand that's all hypothetical, that's what ifs. Not really the not really the pinnacle of analysis here, but when it comes to this game, I'm going to I'm going to expect the big players to make plays, man. 
Like Santana Moss once said on the Miami sideline, big-time players make big plays and big games. That's all he has to say about that. There's a reason the Chiefs are here. Even though they didn't look as good as they did last year this year, it was a point that a lot of people have made. They haven't covered a lot of numbers in the second half of the season. Granted, a lot of those were pretty big numbers, 9.5 points or more, 8.5 points or more. It's hard to cover those big numbers. Chiefs have won all of the games aside from Week 17 when they didn't play Mahomes, but they've won. They just haven't covered. One-score game, I think the Bills win this game, and it it's going to be something weird if the Bills win this game. They're going to have to force a Mahomes mistake, which you can do. We saw it in the game Miami. We saw it in the Miami game. If you force Mahomes to throw into those tighter windows, aside from Kelsey, his other receivers, not the surest hands. They will occasionally bat the ball up in the air, and those balls get intercepted. It's not on Mahomes that they're intercepted, but you can get him into mistakes. I'll be very curious to see what Buffalo does on offense. They came out with a pretty unconventional game plan last week against the Ravens where they didn't run the ball to their 20th play from scrimmage. They only had like 11 rushing attempts in the whole game, and like two of them were Josh Allen runs. I assume they're going to run a little more frequently than that just for a variant sake because Kansas City. Kansas City's defense is weird. It was... It wasn't amazing last year, but it was good enough situationally. This year, it hasn't been particularly great. I mean, Tyron Matthew, you have to respect. He had a really good game against the Browns last week. But other than that, that Chiefs secondary leaves a lot to be desired. I mean, what Thornhill isn't supposed to be able to go. Ward is eh. Sorensen is a liability in coverage. He's okay against the run, but he's not good in coverage down the field. Hitchens and Wilson and Gay, the linebackers, they're not great against the pass out of the backfield, which is, I think, the way the Bills have to use the ball. I know this isn't exactly rocket science that people can figure this out, but short passes are essentially the same thing as running plays. So if the Bills get the ball to Devin Singletary a couple of times on either flats, screens, checkdowns, whether the play doesn't work down the field. A couple more touches for Devin Singletary will help in terms of balance. I know when I say balance that you think in your head that means, oh, 50-50 pass-run split. When I say balance, I mean in terms of what the defense has to respect. If the Bills come out and throw it 30 times in a row before attempting a running play, that 30th play where they actually do run the ball it's got to go for at least 9, 10 yards. I, that's not going to happen, but, but you get my point. You want to have enough balance that the other team can't just sit in expectation of what you're about to do. If Kansas City sits back, or excuse me, Kansas City's not going to sit back. Kansas City's going to try and manufacture a pass rush by any means necessary. As a Giant fan, I can attest to Steve Spagnuolo's fondness for blitzing and then dropping guys back in coverage trying to get pressure in unconventional ways. He's going to have to do it. Tyron Matthew is one of the more dynamic players in the left in the playoffs on defense. There aren't a lot of safeties who could do what he can do, whether it's against the run or the pass. Last point on this game before I wrap up. Andy Reid has been here 
a number of times. He went to multiple NFC title games as the Eagles head coach. He's been to the AFC title game with the Chiefs three straight years now. He lost the one year to New England. He went back last year. And then he's obviously back this year. Situationally, I know Andy Reid is going to be aggressive and try and win the game because he's got Patrick Mahomes. I don't know how aggressive Sean McDermott will be in terms of punting, going for it, and if they're gonna have to break out one of those run bl- one of those zone blitzes out of nowhere just to see how good Mahomes is feeling. I know I rag on coaches for being too conservative. And I worry that McDermott might be a little too conservative in this game. And, of course, there might be no worse feeling in gambling than having money against Patrick Mahomes. It's not easy to convince myself to do this. I just got a feeling. And that's all I can say. I got a feeling. And that's all gambling is at the end of the day. No matter how many, how much stats, how much tape, how much information you have. It's at the end of the day, when you press submit or you make that text message, it's about your feelings. Now, with all that information, I hope you guys have an absolutely great conference championship weekend. If you watch the McGregor-Poirier fight, I hope it's a fun one. If you're watching the NBA, decent games this weekend. I know Lakers-Celtics isn't isn't what it used to be, but it's still a decent game for a Saturday night. There's no other football on. Check in on basketball. The Rangers play the Penguins tomorrow, today, tonight, and then again on the weekend. There's lots of sports on. It's a good time. Good time to be a sports fan. Please, please, please follow on Spotify. Subscribe. Leave a review if you're on Apple Podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Nick Zoraris. Follow the blog at Gotham SN. Rangers blog. Going to try and have one for Friday. Try and have one either before the game against the Penguins or for going into the second game because, you know, the NHL is doing series where it's two game stints against most opponents to minimize travel. With all that, I will see you guys on Monday. Talk about the games. And Tuesday, got a treat. Got one of my professors from college, a decorated, storied, glamorous journalist, Wally Matthews. He covered pretty much anything that's competitive. I I know when I was in his class, he said the first event he ever had to cover was an Ultimate Frisbee tournament, which was pretty funny. He's covered boxing, covered baseball cover pretty much everything under the sun and we're going to talk about the state of sports media and the relationship between fans and the media because as someone who's both i have an interesting perspective who's a diehard passionate fan that still gets driven mad by their team but also likes to give information break things down try and help make the public a little smarter i have an interesting perspective on that it's gonna be a fun week next week gonna keep trying to line up some guests i'll see you guys on monday